Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today is my pleasure to speak with Claudia Lieb about her new book, Power and Feminist Agency in Capitalism, Towards a New Theory of the Political Subject, and this is published by Oxford University Press. Lieb's book, which brings together important questions within a political theory, feminist theory, and economics, the book takes up pressing issues within contemporary political and feminist theory especially as we consider the point of action and the instance of movement. I would like Claudia to explain more of this in our discussion, but first I will invite Claudia Lieb to tell us a little about herself and how she came to this particular project. Hello, Lily. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me to this interview and especially for reading my book. My pleasure. I am myself from Austria, where I got my master's and PhD in psychology at the University of Vienna. And after that, I continued my education at the New School for Social Research in New York, where I received my MA in feminist theory and my PhD in political theory. So I have always been interested in mechanisms of power and trying to figure out how we can not only resist but transform power structures, hence the focus on political subjectivity. The ways I approach the subject of the political subject via the lens of critical feminist and psychoanalytic theory reflects my diverse academic background. And and this particular project came out of your interest in understanding sort of the centrality of the idea of the subject. Is that correct? Exactly. And so when we're talking about your theory or thesis in terms of the concept of the subject, why do we need to think about the subject in context of taking on capitalism or attacking capitalism and moving towards a more equitable political and economic system? So theorizing the political subject as the agent that not only contests but transforms capitalism into a more equitable political and economic system, uh, which I pursue in my book, is of is an important corrective to the lack of a rigorous critique on capitalism on the left in the United States today, to which also political theories contributed, which has arranged itself with free market capitalism. Such a critique is of utmost necessity in times when the far right has managed to deliver false critique on capitalism to shore up its electoral success. My book finds inspiration from Marx's famous thesis 11 in critiquing capitalism that, quoting Marx, philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The important thing, however, is to change it. The thesis raises four interrelated questions that all pertain to rethinking the idea of political subjectivity. First, when can we change the world? This question implies rethinking the subject's relation to capitalist power structures to figure out when subjects can change the world despite their being subjected to power. Second, who is engaged in changing the world? 
This question requires us to rethink the idea of the political subject as the agent who engages in transformative acts. Third, how can we change the world? This question implies a rethinking of the relationship between theory and practice. Fourth, what leads to or spurs on social change? This question necessitates a rethinking of the concept of suffering, in particular the suffering capitalism has brought onto the world as either impeding or leading to social change. So in my book, I bring German and French thought in conversation to answer these questions of sociopolitical change and thereby develop the idea of the political subject in outline. In the first part of the book, I show that political theories that suggest that the political subject emerges in the moment of subjection to power make it difficult, if not impossible, to envision transformative agency. Instead, I introduced the idea of the moment of the limit to explain those moments when power fails to completely subject the working classes, women, racial and sexual minorities, and the political subject with transformative agency can emerge. I furthermore challenge contemporary political theories who theorize the subject as constantly shifting in postmodern fashion or doing away with the subject altogether to respond to the tensions inherent in the political subject. Because without a subject or one that constantly shifts, there is no effective agent of change. Instead, I introduced the idea of the political subject in outline to theorize the who of sociopolitical change, which has a certain coherence, the subject, necessary to affect change, and permanent openness, the outline, necessary to context exclusionary character. I furthermore explain that theory and practice are equally important tools of how people can change the world. And finally, I introduce a rethought concept of suffering to theorize what spurs on social change without imprisoning sufferers in victim identities, and so challenge contemporary thinkers who want to get rid of the concept of suffering in contemporary political theorizing. The second part of the book applies the idea of the political subject in outline to concrete examples, the feminist political subject and the working class woman as political as a political subject. And so in this in this context of of the way that you're teasing out this idea, this concept of the political subject in outline, you also delve into the subject as a problematic or controversial space or concept especially in context of action directed towards capitalism. Can you explain why this is a controversial concept? The concept of the subject is controversial on two fronts. The first one pertains to the question of when can we change the world? Here, inspired especially by Michel Foucault, we encounter controversial debates about the constitution of the political subject through discourse, these debates deal with the tension that on the one side, the idea of the free and autonomous subject, which we find prevalent in capitalism, ignores the ways in which discourse is connected to power that subjects and subordinates subjects. On the other side, a theoretical framework that grasps the political subject as emerging in a moment of subjection to discourse we renders it difficult, if not impossible, to envision agency. An important question for feminist and political theory remains here. 
Can political and feminist theorists theorize a subject constituted through discourse and envision it as a political subject that is in a position to not only contest but transform power structures? On the other side, we find those thinkers who aim to theorize agency within a Foucauldian theoretical framework. But we also find those thinkers who argue that such a framework leads to an inability to theorize agency. It seems that political and feminist thought has reached somewhat something of an impasse over this question. The second strand of debates engages in controversial discussions about how to best theorize the political subject as a political agent. These debates deal with the tension that on the one hand, the notion of the political subject as any political collectivity based on an identity is inherently exclusionary. On the other hand, there is a certain necessity to theorize the political subject as an agent of change. Here, a central question remains. Given the politics of exclusion that the notion of a subject engenders, can we hold on or rethink this notion for emancipatory politics? On the one side are those thinkers who either suggest that we need to give up on the idea of the political subject altogether and or conceptualize it in postmodern fashion as a constantly shifting identity to deal with the tensions inherent in the political subject. On the other side, we find political and feminist thinkers who argue, one second, including, including myself, that we need to rethink the idea of the political subject to theorize the who of sociopolitical change. And, and in this context, as you've already mentioned, your, your concept, the political subject in outline, which I think is really fascinating in terms of our, our understanding of the agency of the political subject. Um, and you know, it's an incomplete political subject, thus why it's an outline. How do we understand this concept in a little bit more depth in, t- in terms of contemporary streams in feminist and political theory? So how I was trying to deal with these tensions that I just mentioned in response to your previous question, I developed an alternative theoretical framework that prevents these conceptual deadlocks um, through my idea of the political subject in outline. In terms of the first tension, the tension between the subject as a subjected being and her capacity for agency, I show that, I show that not every theoretical framework that theorizes subject formation in relation to discourse dissolves the subject, such that it does not allow us to speak of agents and agency. In my book, I draw on the concepts of the real coined by Jacques Lacan and a concept of non-identity coined by Theodore Adorno to theorize what I call the moment of the limit. Although discourses produce subjects as subjected beings, we are never completely determined by discourse because of the moment of the limit in discourse to which the moments of the real and non-identity allude. In this moment, the possibility of a political subject, which refers in my book to both an individual as well as a collective subject with the capacity of transformative agency emerges. Whereas Foucauldian-inspired theorists suggest that the political subject emerges in the moment of subjection to discourse, I, on the contrary, suggest that it emerges in the moment when discourses fail to subject us. In terms of the second tension, the inherently exclusionary character of the political subject and the necessity of this concept to theorize an agent of change, 
I show that a rigorous critique on the idea of a whole and centered subject does not mean that we can give up on theorizing the subject altogether or theorize it as a constantly shifting or fluid subject, as both options do not allow us to envision an agent that not only resists but transforms the suffering capitalism has brought onto the world stage. Already Marx showed us that a fluid subject is the hallmark of liberal capitalism with its everlasting uncertainty and where all that is solid melts into air, which finds its fullest expression in neoliberal capitalism with its flexible networks. The political subject in outline moves, as already mentioned before, within the tension of a certain coherence, which is the subject, necessary to effect change and permanent openness which to which the notion of the outline alludes, necessary to counter its exclusionary character. Because it accepts the moment of the limit in its wholeness and remains non-whole, there's the possibility for excluded subjects to enter or ex exit the political collectivity and redefine its boundaries. Here the limit concept of non-identity and the real assist me to theorize the non-wholeness of the subject which allows me to avoid the problematic notion of a whole or centered subject without promoting the equally problematic notion of the constantly shifting or fluid subject. And I, I mean, this is a fascinating and, and very sophisticated analysis. And I, and I was really engaged with your, your sort of an, discussion of understanding the political subject in outline, because I think it, it, it does get at some of these conflicted issues around the subject. And so I guess my, my next question is, what is the important role of emotions in this context for political and feminist theorizing and practice? So uh, in my book, the role of emotion plays a role in several ways. First, embracing the idea of the political subject in outline in practice, such as in social movements, is a pretty challenging task because remaining a subject with holes generates desires and fears the desire to become whole and the fears that such wholeness is not, po is not possible. So the thing is, if such emotions are not addressed but cast aside, the political subject in Aulan is in danger to do away with its holes as a means to become whole, with the result of becoming exclusionary and unable to transform capitalism. Second, emotions, and in particular the emotions generated by the suffering of capitalism, play also a more liberatory potential in my book, namely as the what of sociopolitical transformation, as what brings people together to, to desire to change the world, which I discuss in my chapter five. Um, in terms of like, uh, there's of course always also a certain suspicion of feminist political theorists who deal with emotions, right? So, um, yeah. And I think you're, I think there's something about that insofar as women, but also minorities and the poor are unconsciously associated with emotions that is chiefly reserved for white bourgeois men. So, and however, my book shows that if political and feminist theorists are casting emotions aside, we not only do not understand what makes people engage in identity thinking, kind of, kind of in, in exclusionary thinking, which does away with the promising idea of the political subject in outline, and we do not understand what makes people rebel against capitalism. So, and I think the recent turn to affect theory in contemporary political theorizing is an important corrective to the casting out of emotions in political theory. 
I, I yes, and I think it was recently in in um, conversation on affect theory at a at a recent conference, and I think that its role is really important in terms of understanding contemporary political and feminist theory, as well as a number of other contemporary theories. Um, but you talked about this tension between theory and practice, and you note in the book that it's a mediated relation, especially as feminist theory moved into the academy in context of the waves of feminism. Um, those who refer to themselves as pracademics, practicing academics, as it were, are not the norm, especially in political theory. And I wonder how much of this is connected more to possibly elitism embedded in the academy, especially at Research One universities or elite colleges, and thus relationships defined by economics and elitism that grows from that. Where is practice in the academy, especially among political theorists, in terms of your understanding um, of this topic? I think this is a central question that comes back to the first line of my books, Marx's famous thesis 11, um, that philosophers have only interpreted the world, the task, however, is to change it. I believe that also political theorists in the academy have succumbed to merely making an interpretation of most liberal political thinkers without aiming to change the world, especially capitalism. Like the left in general, political theorists in the United States Academy, Academy have largely failed to deliver rigorous, rigorous critique on capitalism and instead arranged themselves within it. Um, so in terms of your argument that elitism is responsible for the lack of pracademics is an important one, because if one is comfortable within capitalism and largely shielded from the suffering it causes, which of course academics, especially at elite institutions and elite colleges, um, are faced with, um, then there's less incentive to change it. However, I also believe that there's market pressure, particularly on particular political theorists, since jobs are rare in political theory, graduate students believe that if they embrace the canon of political theory and thus mostly uncritical thinkers, they might be more able to get a job. The downside of this strategy is the lack of critical voices amongst political theorists that are coming up. Um, in my book, I suggest for the political subject in outline, a theoretical construct to have practical force, two things need to be considered. First, the relationship between theory and practice needs to be rethought as a mediated relation, which implies that theory and practice are equally important tools to answer the question of how we can change the world. Second, mediation between theory and practice means to acknowledge the moment of the limit or the non-wholeness in both theory and practice, which suggests that both theory and practice are ongoing and never finished undertakings. As an example, to underline the unfinished moment in my theorizing of the subject, I use the term theorizing, as I use constantly, right. instead of proposing to generate a whole political or feminist theory of the subject. And that certainly makes sense. Um, so this this idea of the political subject in outline, you know, and, and to some degree, this follows on the, mo the most recent previous question, what would make us rebel or what makes us rebel? So yeah, this is, um, this important question leads to, again, to very controversial debates around the concept of suffering as in either hindering or spurring on social change. On the one side, we find those thinkers such as Wendy Brown, who suggest that the focus on suffering of politicized identities through race, gender and sexuality in identity politics 
depoliticized and in, indeed naturalized the suffering caused by capitalism since such identities emerge and obtain the coherence through the politicization of exclusion from the middle class and the suffering it causes, she argues, feminist thinkers retreated from a rigorous critique on the suffering capitalism causes. On the other side are those thinkers such as Louis McNay, who suggests that, he, uh, that the turn to post-identity politics and the focus on non-identity, such as in my book, um, in feminist thought led to an abstract political and feminist theorizing about political agency, which denies that it is embodied subjects who carry out such agency. So I, again, I try, I try to address these debates uh, with my idea of the political subject in outline. Uh, on the one side, I agree with Brown that the focus on the suffering of politicized identities has led to the demise of a critique on the suffering that capitalism causes. However, contrary to her, I argue that we cannot give up on theorizing a better notion of the political subject that brings back the suffering caused by capitalism, alienation, exploitation, and isolation, uh, which are concepts that are largely eschewed in contemporary political and feminist theorizing and that I bring back with my idea of the political subject in outline. On the other hand, I agree with McNay that we cannot give up on theorizing an embodied notion of the suffering subject. However, an engagement with non-identity or equivalent concepts such as the real does not necessarily lead to an abstract theorizing, as she suggests. Rather, the moment of non-identity in the real refers to the bodily moment of physical agony that tells us that the world we live in is wrong and that things should be different. However, the idea of the political subject in outline is based on a mediated relationship between mind and body, which implies that the bodily moment of physical suffering needs at the same time the moment of thinking to figure out what we must do in order to rebel. And so in that context, the, the sort of role of suffering and victim identity is connected to your theorizing in terms of social change. Is that correct? Yeah. So, and that's also coming back to that, uh, actually to Wendy Brown's argument, because she suggests that a focus on the idea of suffering in feminism's identity politics fixes the identity of the insured and the insuring as social positions from which there is no escape. And also, similarly, Linda Cerilli argued that a focus on suffering in feminist thought establishes the fixed category of women as the victims. However, in my book, I show that a focus on suffering does not necessarily imprison subjects in victim identities. Insofar as the bodily moment of suffering refers to the moment of non-identity and the real, which are the concepts that allow me to theorize the idea of the political subject that remains an outline, whose boundaries are permanently open for contestation, there is no danger that an embrace of suffering imprisons one in a victim identity. Furthermore, my conceptualization of suffering caused by capitalism does not lead to a downtrodden subject as we find it in McNay's work. Rather, it leads to a rebellious political subject in outline that is an individual or collectivity ready to transform the status quo. So then following on from that, what is your understanding of the unconscious and how does that inform the idea of the political subject in as outline, but more specifically, you note that the notion of the unconscious is linked to non-identity and the real. What do you mean by this, especially as it connects to agency and change? 
So um, my understanding of the unconscious, which is based on Lacan, informs the idea of the political subject in outline on two levels. First, at the level of subject formation, the unconscious is connected to discourse and power. And at the level of the subject in outline, it is connected with sociopolitical change. At the first level, the unconscious emerges in the moment the subject or conscious subject identifies with or subjects herself to an oppressive signifier or category. Here, the unconscious subject emerges in the moment of subjection to a fixed or closed signifier. As such, the unconscious is composed of all those aspects the signifier denies, which tells us that the political subject finds herself in the unconscious. However, this doesn't mean that the Lacanian unconscious solidifies our subjection to power, as Butler has argued. Rather, in the later Lacan, we find another formulation of the unconscious, where the unconscious is connected to the real and non-identity, which allows us to enlist the unconscious in the project of sociopolitical transformation. In a moment of the real and non-identity, which refers to the moment of the limit in the signifier, the signifier fails to fully determine the subject. In this brief moment, when the signifier opens up, the unconscious subject and its critical potential can emerge in the conscious as a political subject with the capacity to not only resist, but to transform capitalism. And and so in in the con in your book, you talk about the the fighting the ills of discourse, which cannot necessarily be separated from the fight against the ills of capitalism. How and in what ways must these ills be examined together? And how does your thesis in the book take up these connected but often studied separately, as you note, subjects? You talk about the linguistic oppositional and how it's related to the economic oppositional. Can you sort of explain that a little bit more broadly? <clears throat> yeah, thank you for that question. So what I'm arguing throughout the book is that hierarchical oppositions are the prevalent mode of thinking and theorizing in modern capitalist societies, and that such opposition pl positions play a core role in justifying and covering over the suffering capitalism causes, which is the class, gendered, race, and sex division of labor and the exploitation of the working classes, women, as well as racial and sexual minorities. Already Marx showed us that the bourgeoisie established an absolute opposition between the pure mind and the impure body and then linked itself to the mind and the working classes to the despised body, which it then used to justify and cover over the division of labor. Adorno further argued that orchestrating an absolute opposition between the pure mind and the despised body became the primary purpose of those who benefited from the division between mental and material production. So also Marx and Adorno exposed the ways in which the cultural construction of the working classes as the despised body advances capitalist exploitation of workers that did not grasp the ways in which hierarchical oppositions, such as mind-body, intellectual material labor, culture-nature, subject-object, the universal particular, are unconsciously classed, but also gendered, raced, and sexed which are foreground in my book. The signifiers working classes and women, as well as racial and sexual minorities, are unconsciously linked to what constitutes the negative side of hierarchical oppositions, the despised body, nature, material labor, 
the object and the particular, which is used to justify and cover over the division of labor and exploitation along class, gender, race, and sexual lines. If one of the core tasks of feminist political thought is to fight the ills of capitalism, and I believe it is, it has to also fight the ills of discourse. Um, for this, we must pursue several things in tandem. First, we must expose hierarchical oppositions and make conscious the ways they are unconsciously gendered, classed, raised, and sexed. Second, we must deal in groups of people from oppositions to counter the reinforcement of subordination and domination along class, gender, race, and sexual lines. Third, we must establish a mediated relation between oppositions, which are aimed at with developing developing the idea of the political subject in outline. And so following on with regard to the discussion of Marx and Adorno and approaching the idea of working class women, how does this fit into your broader thesis in regard to the subject as outline? Um, like this question brings me actually to the second part of my book where I expose the ways in which Adorno and Marx have problematic constructions of the working class woman. In relation to Marx, he showed that also his core philosophical project was to challenge hierarchical oppositions. And taking a closer look at his writings on the working class woman, he reinforces hierarchical oppositions and we find her positions at what constitutes the negative size, side of such hierarchies. In relation to Adorno, I show that although he attacked identity thinking, which is a thinking that does away with the moment of non-identity, he reinforces identity thinking in his writings on the working class woman, who appears in the three figurations of the phallic, the castrating, and the castrated woman. To counter their identity thinking, I introduced examples of working class women as political subjects in outline with the force to not only challenge but also to transform capitalism. So that the thinkers of whose core philosophical project was to challenge hierarchical oppositions in Marx or in identity thinking in Adorno, reinforce hierarchical oppositions and identity thinking brings us back to the challenges the idea of the subject in outline poses in practice, insofar as accepting to remain a subject with holes or an outline generates desires and fears that implicate Marx and Adorno in the very same form of thinking they challenge in the philosophical projects. For the theory and practice of a political subject in outline to be able to move within the tension of permanent openness and a certain coherence, we must successfully deal with the fears and desires that embrace of the moment of the limit in sights, which brings us back to your earlier question about the importance of dealing with emotions in political theorizing. And, and so, you know, you, you have noted the way that Marx and Adorno in particular are important to understand the, the sort of analysis within your book. Um, but why these particular think, thinkers, um, and more broadly, what other political thinkers, um, are framing the analysis in your book? And how does their work and their theories relate to your particular thesis here? Yeah, so um, I already mentioned them several locations. Right. <laughs> so I, I draw primarily on Marx, Adorno, and Lacan to demonstrate my own ideas. In the course of that enterprise, I also relate the thinkers to each other. Uh, and most importantly, I bring these thinkers in conversation with feminist and post- and decolonial theory. 
Um, so also the thinkers are really invoked in debates around the political subject. The theoretical frameworks are central to constructively deal with the tensions inherent in the idea of the political subject. Adorno and Lacan are important because the limit concepts of non-identity and the real are crucial to theorize the idea of the political subject in outline that is based on a mediated relationship between subject and object, theory and practice, and mind and body. Marx is important because of his rigorous critique on capitalism, which we, of course, also find in Adorno. Also, we do not find in Marx as central as in Adorno and Lacan a limit concept. My book challenges thinkers such as Brown that suggest that Marx is not relevant to theorized subject formation and that he operated with a total notion of power. So I show that Marx had a keen understanding of the ways in which discourse subjects or subordinates us and how such subjection is implicated in capitalist power structures. Furthermore, his idea of the commodity fetish explains the non-wholeness of power in capitalism. And, and, you know, you've, you've sort of answered this question already, but I, I want to ask you the way that I sort of framed it in, in reading your book is that you're kind of making an effort to, for lack of a better term, rehabilitate Adorno and Lacan for feminist political theory. Um, and I'm curious as to why, you know, in a little bit more, um, sort of explanation that it's necessary to do this to sort of rehabilitate some of these thinkers for feminist political theory? So what Adorno and other early Frankfurt school thinkers such as Marcuse and Horkheimer pursue is a rigorous critique on capitalism and fascism by combining psychoanalytic and Marx theories. So unfortunately, such a project has largely been abandoned by contemporary Frankfurt school thinkers such as Fraser and Honneth and Habermas with their dismissal of psychoanalysis and Marxist thought, which led to a de-radicalization of critical theory itself. One reason for Adorno's marginal presence in political and family theorizing is the assumption that he was only concerned with theory and issues of political practice. Another reason for his marginality is his concept of non-identity. Insofar it has given him the reputation of a postmodern thinker who gave up on the subject altogether. However, in this book, I show that Adorno's non-identical is central for theorizing the idea of a subject in outline is not only a position to resist, but to transform capitalist power structures. Also, there are few feminist political theorists who aim to integrate psychoanalytic concepts into their thought. Um, Iris Marin-Yan would be an example. In general, the concern that any attention to psychoanalysis, particularly of the Lacanian sort, reduces politics to the psyche of an individual subject predominates in the field. Especially Judith Butler's selective reading of Lacan, who mainly focuses on his idea of the ego, which she confuses with his idea of the subject, combined with her rejection of the Lacanian unconscious and the real contributed to the cold reception of Lacan in Anglo-American feminist and political theory. Also an essay collection, on Lacan's book 20 introduces the constructive aspect of the real for feminist theorizing, the contributors to the volume only marginally explain the relevance of the real for feminist transformative agency, which my book foregrounds. My book also brings together thought traditions that are often discussed apart from and pitted against each other, especially the German and French thought traditions, particularly 
when it comes to theorizing political subjectivity, which is a reason for the marginality of attempts to bring Adorno in connection with Lacan. However, as this book shows, pitting Lacan against Adorno does not do justice to their similar theoretical projects, such as the parallels between non-identity and the real, and the attack on the idea of a whole and centered subject without giving up on the subject altogether, which is central for theorizing the idea of a political subject in outline. And I, I mean, I, I found that part of your argument to put putting these theorists in connection to one another or in conversation with one another in areas where they hadn't been before to be really um, important and, and super interesting in terms of understanding the political subject and outline. But I wanted to take you back to an earlier question that I have because I continue to be um, intrigued by and somewhat frustrated by sort of the idea for feminist transfer transformative agency um, and economic transformative agency. Um, and I think to some degree, this is often quite a leap for academics, at least that has been my experience. And I have experience working for the federal government and doing political activism myself. But as I noted in one of the earlier questions, and you responded to it um, in part, there isn't a lot of engagement support or movement towards transformative transformative attempts within the academic structure. Um, I send my students on internships, but when you start getting into the realm of, you know, PhD programs, I find this is especially the case within political theory. And, and I have recently read and interviewed the authors of Listen, We Need to Talk, How to Change Attitudes about LGBT Rights, about how there was a shift in attitudes around L LGBT citizens, and that the same is not necessarily moving in a similar direction for transgendered individuals. How then might we expect a shift in both the academic reception of transformative economic and feminist agency, but also the very real, as we say, boots on the ground work that is part of shifting political and cultural perspectives? Can you talk a little bit about that in context of your theory um, of, you know, sort of understanding the role of power and agency within a capitalist structure? So I really like the idea of pracademics as defended by Mike Carlson and Harrison, which implies that we are not just sitting in our office and pondering deep thoughts, but engage in real political work as you have done yourself. This is an important reminder for, lit for political theorists that we cannot just make an interpretation of the world, but must actually do something to change the world, which is particularly important given the rise of the far right in the United States and in Europe. In my own boots on the groundwork, I have worked to transform power structures, particularly within the academic context. At the University of Vienna, I created independent women's groups, one on sexuality and one on women and aggressive behavior, in which we discussed... Awesome literature on sexual oppression and the dismissal of women who display assertive behavior. This work culminated in my first book, The Destruction of the Myth of the Peaceful, Peaceful Woman, where I show that discourses that suggest that women are naturally less aggressive than men contribute to marginalize assertive women by suggesting that such behavior is unnatural and unwomanly and demonstrate that human aggression is more determined by social group context than by gender. Also, at the New School for Social Research, during my graduate studies, I created a women's group across academic institutions in New York City that addressed issues of marginalization in academia for women from working class origins. This group was foremost, 
if not all of the participants, the first time that they voiced the experiences of class oppression as first-generation students and how such oppression intersected with racial and sexual oppression. This work culminated in my second book, Working Class Women in Elite Academia, a Philosophical Inquiry, which is based on interviews with women from working class origins in academic institutions in New York City. Here it discussed the mechanisms of power in academic institutions that contribute to keep working class female and minority scholars either out or at the margins of academic institutions and explained the strategies they used to resist the marginalization in academia. However, mediation between theory and practice means not only establishing connection between theory and practice, such as, as you call, kind of in your idea of boots on the ground pudding, uh, but also granting a moment um, of theory's independence from practice for theory to be able to unfold its critical potential and to avoid a scenario where theory is tailored according to the results practice aims at. Furthermore, there is in many political science departments also certain hostility towards political theory, particularly a political theory that aims at transforming the status quo and capitalism. So while I think that pracademics are important, I believe that, that there also needs to be a greater openness towards political theorizing in its various forms to be able to establish a mediation between theory and practice. And that, of course, makes perfect sense. Um, so in, in terms of your work and your conclusions, you note that they differ from the theorist Slavash Zizek. Um, you note that both you and Zizek bring Marx and Lacan into conversation with one another, but that you reach different determinations. And this is because of your integration of Adorno and because you are working with feminist theory as well. But I would love for you to explain a little bit about the distinctions here. So, like, as you just mentioned, like myself, Shishek aims to bring Lacan in conversation with Marx to explore the ills of capitalism. However, he neither draws on Adorno nor on feminist theory or post-deco and decolonial theory to make his claims, which leads to some prob problematic conclusions. One central strategy Shishek proposes for radical sociopolitical change is what he calls subjective destitution which arises when the subject notes herself as a subject, which she theorizes also as a form of symbolic suicide that allows us to begin anew. This idea of subjective destitution is depoliticizing in a world where the constitution of a political subject to fight the ills of capitalism is more important than ever. Also, the political subject in outline acknowledges the moment of the limit and its subjectivity, its remaining withholds as Shishek does, it significantly differs from his idea of the subject because it rejects an annulling of the subject, as we need to proceed via an outline of a political subject to transform capitalism. I also disagree with Shishek's argument, the paradigmatic case of a psychoanalytic act, which leads in particular Canian parlance to radical transformations, is feminine and exemplified by Antigone's refusal to bend to state power. For him, Antigone's no to state power is literally suicidal and leads to her radical freedom. However, what he erases is that the woman who challenges the masculine socio-symbolic order becomes expelled from the community and her being buried alive, which led to her suicide, 
which I further elaborate in a recent article of mine. Antigone's act of suicide does not subvert the project of capitalism, but rather reinforces it. Because insofar as she modifies her body, her act reinforces the mind-body opposition and the unconscious link of the feminine to the body. Already Marx shows us that suicides are not radical. Rather, as he puts it, es liegt im Gegenteil in der Natur unserer Gesellschaft, viele Selbstmorde zu gebären. It lies on the contrary in the nature of our society, which is capitalist society, to bear many suicides. It Especially it lies in the nature of capitalist suicides to bear suicides of bourgeois women because they are reduced to mere sex objects in bourgeois family structures. However, in contrast to Shishek, Marx does not suggest that these women must annul themselves to transform such societies. Rather, what needs to be annulled is the bourgeois family, which he considers to be at the basis of capitalist society, to transform capitalism itself. And so my next question for you, since you've also noted some of the sort of lineage of your work um, in general on understanding sort of the role of capitalism, particularly for or with for the, the way that political subjects work, is what are you working on now? What's your next project? So, well, I have like connected to like um power and feminist agents in capitalism I have like a few projects that are connected to and an expansion of this book. So the first thing is I had an author meets critical uh, critics panel at the 2017 Western Political Science Association conference in Vancouver, uh, which will be published as a book symposium in political theory. Oh, wonderful. And I also, yeah, and I also have a critical dialogue forthcoming in which I engage with James Martell's recent book, uh, which is called The Misinterpolated Subject, and he engages with my book, and which will be published in Perspectives on Politics in March 2018. So I'm also excited about that. Um, I also have an article forthcoming in Contemporary Political Theory, uh, which is called Suffering and Political Change, which somewhat comes back to my chapter five, where I bring Marx and Adorn in conversation with affect theory, specifically Deleuze, to further elaborate on the idea of suffering as a motor of change. I draw on Marx's metaphor of the vampire capital to explain the ways in which capitalism depletes a race, gendered and sexed working class of the bodily and mental powers. And I then show how the mind-body opposition serves to cover over the suffering caused by such depletion. Uh, and I also finally, I explain how negative feelings generate, generated by the suffering um, can generate critical thinking necessary to rebel against the vampire capital. So this is somewhat like connected to the book. Um, I have also uh, a book forthcoming in February uh, 2018, which is called uh, The Politics of Repressed Guilt, The Tragedy of Austrian Silence, which is going to be published by Edinburgh University Press. So and in this book, I discuss some of the ideas uh, developed in power and feminist agency in capitalism in the context of totalitarian power. So whereas... Um, so it draws on the work of Arendt and Adorno to illustrate the relevance and applicability of a political discussion of guilt and democracy. It shows that only by confronting individual and collective guilt feelings can individuals and nations take responsibility for past crimes, show solidarity with the victims of crimes, 
and prevent the emergence of new crimes. Somewhat also coming back to like your question of the importance of emotions uh, in political feminist theorizing. It utilizes psychoanalytic theory to analyze court documents of Austrian Nazi perpetrators, as well as recent public controversies surrounding Austria's involvement in the Nazi atrocities to discuss how the former agents of Nazi crimes on contemporary Austrians have dealt with their guilt. In particular, it exposes the defense mechanisms to fend off individual guilt used by Dr. Niedermoser, a physician responsible for the mass murder of psychiatric patients in the Klagenfurt Psychiatric Hospital, and those used by the university professor and scientist Beigelberg, who was responsible for the lethal experiments on Roma and Sinti in the concentration camp of Dachau during the post-war trials. It shows that the mechanisms Nazi perpetrators used to fend off the individual guilt parallels the attempts of contemporary Austrians to evade their collective guilt feelings, which it exposes by analyzing the attempt of Austrians to hinder the staging of Thomas Bernhard's Heldenblatt's, a play that exposes the continuing fascist elements in Austria during the 80s, and their recent attempt to hinder the establishment of a museum that exposes Austria as a perpetrator nation. Um, and it also considers strategies to break the negative cycle of the inability to confront guilt. And um, connected in that to that book, and I don't want to go into detail, uh, have also two um, book chapters forthcoming. One is called Morning the Night, the taboo subject that comes forward uh, in, it's called The Democratic Arts of Morning, political theory and loss, and here again show uh, the importance I uh, draw on the psychoanalytic theory and, and critical theory to show the importance of the work of mourning for the victims of crimes in order to show solidarity with the victims and to prevent further crimes from happening. And I also have another article forthcoming, um, which is called A Festival for, Frust for Frustrated Egos, The Rise of Trump from an Early Frankfurt School Critical Theory Perspective, Again, where I'm using uh, psychoanalytic and Marxist thought to explain some of the psychoanalytic mechanisms that led to the rise of Trump in the United States, in particular how Trump has successfully exploited feelings of failure from people who cannot live up to the ne neoliberal capitalist ideology of success and were ready to replace their ego the ideal, which functions as one's moral consciousness and reality testing with that of the leader as a means to get relief of the stains of frustration and instead feel great again. Will you come on and speak to us when your book comes out in the winter? Yeah, definitely. Well, February. So I guess it's, hopefully it's already spring. Okay, spring. Um, so, so where can, be, besides the usual places online that we don't necessarily have to speak about, um, where can somebody buy your book? So I have, you can buy directly at Oxford University Press, of course, also via Amazon, uh, but you can also uh, buy it like from my website, which is www.claudialeb.com. Great. Thank you so much for being with me today, Claudia. I really enjoyed reading your book. It is, it is uh, sophisticated and fascinating. So I hope you will join us again when the next book comes out. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Lily, for your time and interviewing me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure.